So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us with whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen. Make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. Introducing the s Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome back to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 28. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, it's been a while since we recorded our last podcast. Uh, certainly, it's almost like a deja vu moment for, I think... Uh, for me a little bit because it's Friday when we're recording this podcast and we both used to do a couple radio shows on Friday so rarely did we do our podcast on Friday so it feels a little fun of a flashback. Yeah it's a fun little flashback for us especially as you said we both used to host our shows on Friday. Um, a lot has gone on though between the time of our last podcast so so many things have been going on so it just it seems just right that this is the time that we're coming back onto the air. Yeah, I completely agree, and what better time? Uh, NBA getting very close to the NBA Finals, and we're going to kick it off with that. The Rockets played the Warriors last night, winning 98-94. to Off the bench, Eric Gordon, extremely impressive 24 points, a big reason why the Rockets were able to win this game. Uh, but I think a bit of a surprise is really the Rockets are leading the series 3-2, to so are you surprised with the Rockets so far and how they've done against the Warriors? You know, actually, I'm really not. Um, you know, when we started our playoff preview podcast, um, I originally said Rockets and Cavaliers in the finals because um, I really do think the Rockets are the one team that can challenge the Warriors and that can actually beat the Warriors. Um, you're looking at a team that's incredibly a big lineup when Capella is in there. You saw how many block shots Clint Capella had yesterday. Um, they forced you to turn the ball over. 17 turnovers yesterday for the Golden State Warriors for a team that barely turns the ball over. Um, we know how poetic um, the Warriors can be with their style of passing and moving the ball up the floor. So that's shocking in itself. Um, but the Rockets are also an incredibly deep team. I mean, you're talking about a team that has CP3, James Harden, uh, you know, Clint Capella in the starting lineup. And then you have, you know, specialty players like Ryan Anderson, um, uh, Eric Gordon, who's a three-point specialist. You have Gerald Green. You have P.J. Tucker, who plays on a you know a phenomenal defense. Um, so when guys have certain roles on teams, and this is an incredibly deep Houston Rockets team, it does not surprise me that they're up three two. Um, do I still think this is going to go seven? Probably, because these two teams are so closely matched up. I think we finally found a team that matches up well against the Warriors, especially since they're such a small lineup now. They don't really have a true center, and especially when Iguodala is not playing. Um, I truly believe that, you know, it's not a surprise for me that the Rockets are up 3-2. I think one of the big stats that really, I think most people believe the Rockets had a serious chance is when Harden, Paul, and Capella are all on the court at the same time starting, they're 50-5 and 
or 51 and five for the season, including the playoffs. And that's huge, but I mean, this is still the Warriors. And we're talking about a team that holds, what, four of the best 15 to 20 players in the NBA uh, easily. I, so for me, it's a bit surprising. Uh, mainly also because one of the big stats for me is the Warriors have led going into the fourth quarter four out of these five games. So I'm looking at it and I'm saying, other than game, I think, two, or, our, um, or the first two games into series uh, where the Rockets just blew out the Warriors, that was the only one where the Warriors weren't leading going to the fourth quarter. So I am a bit surprised that when you have guys like Curry, Durant, Clay Thompson, you're just not able to get it done and finish out a game. And th- this should be done by the Warriors. They're the better team at the end of the day. So I am a bit surprised because I thought this was going to be a much easier series for the Warriors because of just how good of a team they are and what the players that they hold around them. And, and it's not trying to say just to the Rockets, but I just didn't view the Rockets as being in any sort of class with the Warriors, let alone leading the series. Uh, but certainly there's still a lot of time left for the Warriors uh, to come back in this one. Over in the Eastern Conference... No Kyrie Irving, no Gordon Hayward, and for a Boston Celtics team that questions on whether they could get through the Milwaukee Bucks, and then after we saw how well the 76ers played against the Miami Heat, everyone's thinking, oh, the 76ers are going to the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals, and they and they can't get through Boston, and they get beat by Boston pretty bad in most of these series. And then we see the Celtics take a 2-0 lead against the Cavs. Now they lead 3-2 in the series, been pretty much untouchable at home. Jose, really, how much credit should we be looking to give Brad Stevens for these Boston Celtics players? Well, you know, it's funny because we're talking about who is the coach of the year in the NBA. Certainly, you could make a case for Dwayne Casey. You know, the Raptors won the most games in franchise history this year. You can make a case for Quentin Snyder for the Utah Jazz back to the playoffs without Gordon Hayward in its first year. But you look at the Celtics as well, too. And we all know the Celtics are an incredibly coached team. But I think what cements coach of the year for me, for Brad Stevens, is, is this run in the playoffs. And I know you're not supposed to really take the playoffs into you know consideration because not every team makes the playoffs. But for Brad Stevens, I mean, you said it yourself. You're talking about a team. No Gordon Hayward since day one of the NBA season. No Kyrie Irving because he had knee surgery. He misses the playoffs. This team is doing it without a superstar player. And that's no knock on the guys that are on the team. It's just it's just fact, though. You know, Terry Rosaire, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, you know, Jason Tatum. I think Tatum's going to be a future star, but right now he's not a legit star in the NBA. These guys are good role players and good regular players. None of them are star players, and yet they're getting it done. So to me, what you're proving is that Brad Stevens is phenomenal at creating a system. And really, this is what you see with Golden State, too, is that Golden State Warriors have a nice system. You just don't really notice it because of all the star power that they have. But with the Celtics, you see the system work as one, the defensive system, how they hustle up the court, how they pass the ball to one another. This truly is just a being one of the best players in the NBA in LeBron James because he has no help, yes, but also, you have to give a ton of credit to Brad Stevens and to the Celtics because with no star player, no guy to give the ball to in the last two minutes of the game and say, hey, go give me a game-winning shot, this team is relying on one another and truly showing you the team concept of playing basketball as a team. Yeah, 
this is real simple. I mean, like, in, in the NBA, we're led to believe one thing. You need stars. And, and when we say stars, we mean it plural. One does not get it done. Uh, we saw what one get it done with LeBron very early in his career when he went up against the San Antonio Spurs in the finals and got swept. That's pretty much the last time we really saw one getting it done. And by done, you didn't even win a game. It doesn't work without stars. That's what we're led to believe at this point. The Warriors have multiple stars on their team. The Rockets have multiple stars. The Cavs, when they were getting to the finals, had Tyree Irving, Kevin Love, LeBron James, the Miami Heat, the Lakers for years, the San Antonio Spurs for years. It, the NBA has relied on just that. Now, I'm not saying that like guys like Jason Tatum uh, and Brown can't be or or don't have like the potential to become great players, but your best player is Al Horford. Your best player is Jason Tatum. Terry Rozier, who's been a backup all year. Brad Stevens finds these guys and just makes it work. Isaiah Thomas last season was a great player. This year, nothing, practically. So, I gotta agree with you. Coach of the year for me is Brad Stevens. And it can't be guys, like, for the Toronto Raptors when he gets fired. I mean, how can you vote for a guy who... Yes, he led Toronto to the most wins in the Eastern Conference and then just gets fired like that. It just doesn't add up to, yeah, you're not really the coach of the year. But Art Stevens for me definitely is. And this was an interesting question I got asked. And I'll, I'll ask it to you as well. At, at what point, if you had to do an entire draft of every NBA player and coach, at what point are you drafting Brad Stevens? 20, well, 25, 30, 40 players in? By the time that you're talking about that, how long before you draft Brad Stevens? Actually, I would go even higher than that. And honestly, um, and, and I mean it, because you know you see what Brad Stevens has to work with. So to me, I can give him probably five of the you know the worst players in the NBA, and he could probably get him an eight seed in, in, in the Eastern Conference, possibly. So honestly, when a coach like that comes around, you don't waste any time. So if I was doing a fantasy draft of some sort... I really would draft Brad Stevens early on, maybe even like 10 players in. Um, I wouldn't wait till 20 because, again, guys like this don't come around too often. And these are the kind of guys that create dynasties that can win you a couple championships in a row, um, not just one every couple of years. Yeah, there's, and in my eyes, there's only like two coaches in any sport that we're talking about that is that realistic of drafting that early on before any other players. And that's Bill Belichick and Brad Stevens. That's the only two guys in their sports that the coach is going to get drafted that early. And, well, Boston, you got it pretty well because you have the two best coaches in those leagues. And it's by far, and I, I give all credit to Brad Stevens on this one. And, you know, it, it would be interesting to say the least if the Celtics were to get to the NBA Finals and, of course, if they... I'm not saying they're going to win, but if they did win, I would really hope Brad Stevens would get a possibility as it's the MVP of that series. Not going to be happening, but certainly realistic to the point of here a game away from the NBA Finals and you've not had your two best players for your entire playoffs and 
pretty much Gordon Hayward all, all season long. And Kyrie Irving missed, what, at least a month this year for the team. So he's had like nothing to work with at times. And the Celtics just continue to get it done. All right, for the Warriors and Cavs, both trail 3-2 to two right now. Both of them at the same point. It's a home game for game six for them. If they're able to win it, a road game for game seven. For the Cavs, who has to step it up for them to win the series? And for the Warriors, who has to do that as well? Well, first of all, it's pretty funny that both teams, right, that we talked about that we were going to see part seven between the two in the finals are down 3-2 in a game away from elimination. That's kind of funny and uh, you know, and a little bit of sarcasm, too, uh, when you think about it. Um, but, you know, for the Cavaliers, there's really no one else that could step up on this team. I mean, LeBron's doing all that he can. Um, what he really needs is guys like J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver to get hot and stay hot. Um, but the problem with that is guys like that don't stay hot. They may have one great game like Korver did earlier in the series where he was hitting threes from beyond the arc. That's great, but that's not going to happen all the time. The Cavaliers do not have that second player that's going to be a consistent player. Yes, don't you know? Get, don't get me wrong. J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver, when they're hot, they're hot, and they can help LeBron a lot. But you know that doesn't happen all the time. You know they have to get in a certain rhythm, or they have to be feeling a certain way in a particular game, or have to feed them the ball in a particular way. Um, so if I have to choose somebody just for the sake of the segment, I will say maybe George Hill, since he is the point guard on this team, he needs to set guys better up with shots. Um, but in reality, I just don't think the Cavaliers have that player that has to step up because of the team is so depleted and there's no one behind LeBron James. I'm just going to go when it comes to the Cavs one. If your name is not LeBron James or Kevin Love, you have to step up because you have not done enough in this series. And I agree with you. They're not good enough players to expect that stepping up and expecting that great game. But you have to do more. And you, I think it's getting to the point of it's pretty obvious. And you hear guys like J.R. Smith say it. Like, we can't just rely on LeBron James. But you're completely doing that. And that's the only player you're looking at for any hope to win this series. And realistically, I mean, I think LeBron, you even have to consider as that guy to step up. Because scoring 20, 25 points is not going to win you a game. I think we've noticed that from LeBron James. He's had to put up 40 points multiple games in this entire playoffs just for the Cavs to have a chance at beating the Pacers, to have a chance at beating the Celtics. So it's got to be pretty much on everybody because just nobody's getting it done correctly. And I think it starts with the guys outside of LeBron James and Kevin Love because they just have not done anything or not done completely enough for giving the Cavs a chance to win a game. And what about the Warriors? Anybody on on the Warriors that you think needs to step up? Yeah, I'm going to say Draymond Green. Um, you know, Draymond Green has been, really been struggling as of late, um, defending some of these players. You're seeing him get dunked on a little bit. Um, you know, yesterday at the end of the game, you saw him trip up on the final possession. You know, that's not always going to happen. It could have been a fluke, but I think Draymond Green is stepping up too in terms of his defense and really helping, you know, box guys like Capella out, which is not an easy task. Again, the Warriors don't have a true center, um, but if, especially if Iguodala is going to be out for six and seven as well too, we don't really know the nature of his injury. I think Draymond's really going to need to step up here. And I'm not saying he needs to drop 30 a game. I just think Draymond needs to play smarter basketball to allow guys like Curry, Thompson, and Durant to play their game and not have to focus on trying to do too much. Yeah, you know, I, I was trying to 
think of somebody, and I was looking at Durant's numbers or Curry's numbers, and Tom, and really the big number that stood out to me, and I'll give you a few, 21, 27, 13, 27, 32, and before anybody thinks that's not the winning lotto tickets, if it is, go play them, but most likely it's not. Uh, that's the amount of foul shots the Rockets have taken in every game this, so far this series. Three games of 27 or more. Guess what? Those are the three games they've won. Even the 21 foul sh- uh, game where they took 21 foul shots, that was the first game the Rockets scored over 100. And obviously the 13-1 was that 41-point loss uh, that the Warriors completely blew out the Rockets. But if... You're looking at a team like the Houston Rockets, one of the best three-point shooting teams in the entire NBA, some of the best three-point shooters in the entire NBA. You cannot put a team like that on the foul line 27 and 32 times a game. You're going to put yourself hugely behind. You're going to make this a very tough game for yourself. And it doesn't matter if you're the Warriors or any other team in the NBA. You put a team on that line that many times, it's just going to lead to a lot of trouble. So I'm not saying that the, uh, that a certain player needs to step up because most of the guys have put up great games. Draymond Green had a great game in Game 5. Steph Curry, in that, that blowout win, he was going off in that third quarter. And it's just guy after guy you, you could pick on this list, but the foul shots... I mean, that's what you really have to cut down more than anything is what I'm looking at. Because if you're putting a team like the Rockets on the line that many times, yes, you will not win the NBA game no matter who you are. And the Warriors have proven that so far. They have not been able to beat the Rockets when they've put them on the line that many times. So I think that's the big change that needs to be made for the Warriors because you have the top players already. You have the great scorers, but you're just not putting the right defense on the court when it comes to Houston, and I think that's the biggest floor right now that the Rockets have been exploiting more than anything. All right, Jose, which team's got a better chance of coming back in this series down 3-2? You know, that's a weird question because I want to say that if the Cavaliers win game six, then the Cavaliers are going to win game seven. I just think that if, if LeBron puts on a show and wins game six, there's no way he's losing game seven. Um, you know, he's not going to go out there and put on a full effort for game six if he's going to lose game seven. So, but in all honesty, I think the best chance probably is the Warriors because of what we mentioned before. I mean, the Cavaliers don't have enough behind LeBron James to get this done, I think. Yes, the Celtics struggle on the road. Yes, the Celtics play better at home, and game six is going to be in Cleveland. But I don't think the, the Cavaliers just simply have enough to win two more games as opposed to the Warriors who still have a stacked team. Iguodala could be back. We don't know if Chris Paul is playing in Game 6. He had a hamstring injury late in yesterday's game, and he did pull up limping and didn't play the final minute. Um, Now, do I expect Chris Paul to try and be ready for Game 6? Definitely, but we don't know how he's going to be affected by that hamstring. So I think the Warriors definitely have a better chance. Why? Because they have a fully healthy team almost. They have more than the Cavaliers, and they might have an advantage if Chris Paul has to play limited minutes. Uh, I'm going to pick the Warriors in this one, uh, mainly because... I think both teams have a great chance of coming back in this series. I think both teams are going to force a game seven, but that's the difference. If if both teams are forcing a game seven, do the Cavs have a better chance at winning in Boston? Because no team really has won in Boston 
this entire playoffs, or do the Warriors have a better chance when they're the better team? So I'm going to take the Warriors in this one, but I do think, you know, both teams are not out of it. This is a 3-2 series, and both of them have the ability to force a game seven easily, just like you said. And, you know, I, I still think the Warriors and the Cavs are the better teams in these series. So, obviously, we're going to be posting this one out on the NBA. Uh, we're still trying to get to the NBA Finals. We're going to try and hope to record one again before the NBA Finals begin or to try and give a little bit more of our playoff uh, and finals predictions uh, we may use Twitter on that one if we're not able to get in time because it's been a little tough. Like we said, we haven't been recording in a little while. Uh, but that's on the two of us, of course. But either way, who, which two teams you got going to the finals and who wins it? Well, you know, despite all the crap I talked about the Cavaliers, <laughs> I'm still sticking with my prediction because if you go back to the last podcast, I did say Rockets and Cavaliers in finals. So since my have a huge ego – and I hate being wrong. I'm still going to roll with the Rockets and Cavaliers in the finals. You know, I pretty much can take that entire line as well. Uh, I'm going to take the two teams I picked. And that's the Warriors and Cavs. Uh, as well with the Eagle as w- uh, and as well as not wanting to be wrong. To me, I think both of these teams are going to come back. And I, again, like I said, they both got home court in game six. And if I'm Houston and if I'm... Boston, you want to win that because you really don't want to force it to a game seven when it's by far the best player on the court is going to be LeBron James in that game seven. We see the numbers that he puts up in game sevens. And the Warriors, they're the better team. They got two of the best five players in the NBA. They got four amazing players on this team. Kevin Durant is and Steph Curry, and the moment comes that they could easily be going off. So if you're both these teams' game sits, these are must-win games for you because the last thing you want is to put it to a game seven and to give these teams a legit hope of coming back. But I think it's going to be the Warriors and the Cavs yet again, and I'll have the Warriors beating the Cavs. It's going to be that way again in the NBA in my mind. But did you also say who you had winning it, though? Uh, yeah, uh, well, actually, I kind of don't remember who I picked in the first place, <laughs> but if I have to pick anybody from the Rockets and Cavaliers based on what I've seen, I think I'm going to roll with the Rockets. I mean, I think anybody who comes out of the Western Conference, if they're facing Cleveland, is going to win the, the NBA Finals. I just think both the Warriors and the Rockets are way too fast of a team. They play fast-paced basketball. They're in your face. They play good defense, both the Rockets and Warriors, and again, on a team where LeBron is literally doing all the work, it's going to be like 2007, I believe, when he faces Spurs all over again. They may not sweep them, but I also don't see the Cavaliers taking too many games against a team like the Rockets or the Warriors when LeBron is doing it solo. If the Celtics happen to make it to the finals, I think it gets a lot more interesting. But either way, for the purpose of my prediction, I'm going to roll with the Rockets. So Jose's got the Rockets versus the Cavs. Uh, and the Cavs coming back. I have both teams coming back in the Warriors and the Cavs and the Warriors beating the Cavs. In part nine, in part nine of the of the Warriors Cavaliers. <laughs> you do realize we're getting to the point where there might be as many Warriors Cavaliers finals as there are Fast and the Furious movies. Uh, that's now that that's going too far. <laughs> Neither of them are great, but I mean that's a discussion for another day. I mean there's gonna be as many times as LeBron James then gets to the finals as the Fast and the Furious movies. Are we up to that number yet? I believe I, I don't know. I lost track after Fast and the Furious three because, quite frankly, <laughs> none of the rest of them are that great. <laughs> I, I'll agree with you there. I, I, I like the Vin Diesel, but I mean, like 
after a while, uh, it gets to the point. Uh, one thing that's also changed since our last podcast in between, how about legalized sports betting in different states? It's it's obviously still in the framework for a lot, but with that in mind, one of the biggest betting, obviously it's always football, but horse racing. Always when you go into track, it's all about betting. It's an entire gambling sport in general. Uh, and one of the big horses that's standing out right now is Justify. One in the Kentucky Derby, one Peakness, is two weeks away from Belmont for the Triple Crown. And we haven't seen the Triple Crown too often, three years ago. I believe American Pharaoh was the winner of that one. But before that, 27 years it took for some uh, for a horse to get to the Triple Crown before American Pharaoh. So it's been a while. Even still, Jose, do you see Justify taking the Triple Crown, or do you think that a horse like Good Magic has the best chance? Well, I know Just Justify, you know, pretty much is the best horse in this race, and he's been the best horse in the past couple of races. But I'm also a pretty negative person sometimes, so I'm going to say no, just for the just to be a little bit negative here. Um, I, we need some diversity in here. Um, I don't I don't see it happening. In all seriousness, I mean, it's it's a really hard thing to do. You're talking about winning three. Um, you know, three races uh, where, you know, the competition, and not that it gets better, but it's like, you know, that takes a toll on you to be racing all the time too, especially for the horse. Um, so, you know, fatigue is a legit thing, you know, just like you see LeBron James getting fatigued, you know, these horses are fatigued as well too. I mean, racing season's pretty long and, you know, it takes a toll on them with each race that comes their way. So I think Justify runs out of gas and it doesn't get it done. Yeah, I mean, so many times we've also seen like the the most dominant horse just get injured early on in the track. It, just a freak injury or a freak slow start can be the difference maker for you. Um, you know, I, I do believe Justify can do it. Uh, I do believe Justify is the best horse in these races. But it's not going to be easy, especially with Good Magic. Good Magic led in most of the Peakness race before Justify was able to catch up and win the race. Uh, but I think if you're looking at this on a better standpoint, I think the best bet to take is not justify winning for the triple crown but justify and good magic placing one and two in any order i think that becomes the safest bet because that's been all it has been is just justify and good magic as the only two options of winning these races at all and i think that's just the the best bet and the safest bet to take uh you're probably getting close to the same odds uh, of just taking justify to win the race uh, because it's, I think he's become an even bet at this point, one to one. So it, that's how much of a favorite Justify is. But Good Magic, you still have to consider because that has been one of the more dominant horses as well. Uh, with that as well, when it comes to the NBA Finals, and we're getting close to it, we're already at the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. So featuring the Las Vegas Golden Knights, a team that didn't even exist a year ago, as an expansion teams in its first season getting to the Stanley Cup Finals versus the Washington Capitals. And, you know, the biggest joke about the Capitals has been they're always that team that's considered that choke artist, gets to the playoffs, the best record in the Eastern Conference uh, for so long, and every year just falling short, being out in the first round or being out in the second round. So let's start with this. The Las Vegas Golden Knights... Is this the greatest first season by an expansion team, in your opinion? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's crazy to think about how far they've come as a team, honestly, too. Because, like we were talking about, it is almost like the rejects, you know, coming together. Each team had to set aside players that they weren't, you know, they had to basically protect players that the Knights couldn't take in the expansion draft. So it's basically the players that other teams were willing to lose or willing to part ways with because they didn't mind another team taking them. So when you think about that, that doesn't exactly strike my mind as, oh, you know, players that you could build a championship team with. Yes, they were able to get some steals um, along the way, but you have to, I mean, you have to think, you have to wonder, and really you have to agree, this might be the best season by anybody in their first year, whether it's like a regular athlete or a team. I mean, it's harder to have a better first year. They're the second expansion team to get to the Stanley Cup Finals. The first was the St. Louis Blues, but the thing about them was they sent all the expansion teams to the West. So from the original six um, NHL teams, they stayed in the East, and basically every expansion team went to the West, so one of them was going to get there. But to me, this is this is the best you could ever hope for. Most expansion teams in their first year, I mean, they, they're not in the playoffs. They're under 500. They only win a few games. Uh, the Vegas Knights have been one of the best teams since the very beginning of the season. And not only that is, I mean, they're the only team in their, their area. So I think they presents much more of a challenge when you're talking about uh, trying to make your make sports recognizable in your area. And obviously Vegas and sports are going to be pretty recognizable because of all the betting that goes on in Vegas. But that's the first real sports franchise in the Las Vegas area. I'm, I'm not counting the Las Vegas Mets team at all. No, no, that's, that, that's Shame a joke. on you. No, no. Shame no, on I you. will not. No, I will not. I will not count minor league baseball as that choice. Uh, but... I mean, you take the St. Louis Blues, what, they had the St. Louis Cardinals? How many years was that team around? And so there's just so many different, um, I I think that's the big standpoint for me, that not only do you have to try and be this entire franchise, but we're also talking about, you know, the the terrible shooting that occurred in Las Vegas and, and there being the one team in that area, we've always known those races like the Boston Strong when it, the Boston bombing and uh, the Boston Red Sox were a big part of that. The Houston Rockets uh, right now with the Santa Fe, and again, all of our uh, prayers, hopes, and changes go out to all those situations. But you know, sports are a, a big way to ease pain sometimes. So. Las Vegas Golden Knights being that only option and stepping up in that role at times. So, you know, for me, this has been an incredible run for the Las Vegas uh, Golden Knights. So, as well, who do you have winning this? Well, you know, it, it's it's been fun to watch the you know the Vegas Golden Knights go all the way um, to get to the Stanley Cup, as you said. But when it comes down to it, Alice Ovechkin probably is a LeBron James of hockey, in my opinion. Ovechkin is the best player in the NHL. If not, it's, he's a close second to Sidney Crosby. But um, I think Ovechkin finally gets it done. I think the Capitals, uh, you know, they're kind of a lot like the Washington Nationals when it comes to baseball, right? They can't get over the hump of the first round. Now they finally do, and they finally get to a Stanley Cup final. So I think for the Capitals is, you know, now that they're over that hump, the monkey's off their back, and now 
I feel like they have more confidence to get it done and wrap up the series. So it's been fun to watch the Golden Knights. I would love for the Golden Knights to win because that's just a really fun storyline to talk about. Um, but I think the Capitals get it done. Yeah, this is, a, I think, a fun fan moment because you're dealing with an expansion team. So that's that's always something great to root for. And this isn't the Penguins, and not take anything away from them, but they've won the last two Stanley Cups. So you don't really want to, you won't see a favorite that you really have a fan favorite to. But for the Capitals, Alex Ovechkin is a huge part of the NHL. He's been that way for the last decade. Plus, Washington in general hasn't won a championship since, I think, 1991 with the Redskins. And as you mentioned, there's just time and time again where it's just big mistakes and those. Uh, terrible like playoff moments that eliminate Washington teams. The, the Nationals have a few of them on their list, uh, especially. But you know, this is gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm gonna go with Las Vegas mainly because it's Las Vegas, and you know. Uh, but Mark Andre Fleury for me. You know, this is a guy that's been the goalie for the Penguins for the last what decade. He's won three championships. That 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 is a playoff hockey goalie. He has shown that from the get-go. Uh, in that last series, 151 saves on 161 shots uh, against Winnipeg, and he allowed four goals in that first game. So it's only been six goals he's allowed in the final four games of that entire stretch. And, the shots are just there for the Golden Knights, and it's that's that idea of that a lot of these guys are veterans, and a lot of these guys do have some playoff experience. That it's not just a brand new team, and you could even say that Las Vegas may have more playoff experience than the Washington Capitals, especially Mark Andre Fleury. So I'm going to give it to the Las Vegas Golden Knights. I'm a huge. The key for me is always goaltending, and I'm going to give it to the playoff goaltender and the the finals goaltender that has had consistent winning. So I'm looking at Las Vegas to take home and really be the true greatest. I mean, are you if you win the championship, would you consider this the greatest first year expansion team? Oh, I I already think it is. Honestly, um, I think we you know you said it before. You listed all the reasons why it could why they are already. Um, I just think the Stanley Cup would be icing on the cake. I mean, even if the, even if they lose, I feel like it's still the greatest expansion team's first year. Um, but why not? Ending it with a cup would be so much better, obviously. Yeah, this this certainly should be a great finals. Uh, and for a lot of NHL f- fans, you've been watching Alex Ovechkin for years, and he's not always that guy to root for, but. He's not like Sidney Crosby, where it's like most people just hate Sidney Crosby. Most people really respect and love Alex Ovechkin, so I think there's more of a... Unless you're a Rangers fan, of course. Yeah, unless you're like a Penguins, Flyers, Rangers, or anybody else that the Capitals have beat the hell out of for the last decade. Um, no, nah, so it's it's certainly got a lot of interest for me. Uh, but going past that, let's go into the NFL, because when we last spoke about the NFL, you know, the draft had hadn't even taken place. So, obviously, a lot of quarterbacks got drafted in the first round. Lamar Jackson being that sneaky last decision moment. But which drafted quarterback will have the most success on his new team? Uh, honestly, I'm going to roll with Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills only because I think Josh Allen's going to get the most opportunity to play. Um, you mentioned it. Um 
Well, I mean, first of all, let me ask you for your question. Do you mean like this season or, or overall? Well, do both. Okay, who well, do you think has the best first season? And who do you think has the best overall career? I now that first, we know what team they're on. Yeah, first season, I think it's going to be Josh Allen. Only because he's going to get the opportunity to play more, I believe. You know, uh, Lamar Jackson, he's going to sit behind Joe Flacco for a year, maybe more, out in Baltimore. Um, Baker Mayfield, as much as I love his confidence and I love his arrogance, um, I still think he's a QB that benefits more from having better receivers. I don't think the Cleveland Browns are going to make that giant step and make the playoffs yet. But I think Baker Mayfield will have an okay season. Obviously not better than the upper-tier QBs. Same thing with Josh Rosen. I don't know if he's going to start right away, so I don't know how many games he's actually going to play. You know, right now I kind of have him behind Sam Bradford only because he is the rookie. And to me, I think Sam Darnold is the true gem, of course, in this quarterback class. But with Darnold, you know, I don't see the Jets starting him right away. I don't think the Jets are in a rush. I think Josh McCowan's probably going to start a couple of games. Um, and then when, once they feel Darnold is ready, he'll come in the later half of the season, which is not a problem. Um, but I think Josh Allen is going to have more opportunities to play. If you think about it, there's no real quarterback in front of him in Buffalo. They traded Tyrod Taylor, so that door is wide open for Allen to take. So I think in terms of the season, I think it's going to be Allen only because he's going to have more opportunity to play all year long. In terms of overall, I think it's going to be Sam Darnold. This kid's a horse. He's built like a true QB. He's built like Ben Roethlisberger. He throws hard, strong arm, has everything you want in a franchise quarterback. I think the Jets really got lucky here that he fell to them at three. They got themselves a good one. And I know the Jets are notorious for screwing these kind of things up, but I really hope the Jets play their cards right. You know, I'm not a fan of giving a guy a clipboard, but if I'm the Jets, I give this guy a clipboard and let him get his, you know, get, let him get acclimated. Wait till you have, actually have a good team around him to start playing him. Um, and I just think Darnold's probably the better QB out of all of them. Most likely, Josh um, Allen has the best chance, like you said, of putting up the best numbers his rookie season because the other four have a quarterback competition. Now, they're all drafted in the first round, and what, three out of the four were drafted in the first ten pits, the only one of Lamar Jackson that went later on in the first round. But, you know, he's still only facing Joe Flacco, who's been really not the greatest of quarterbacks. Uh, then you have uh, Josh McCown versus Sam Darnold, and obviously McCown being 38, 39 years old, it doesn't really help him. Uh, Sam Bradford is, you know, able to play maybe three weeks before he gets injured. Uh, so, you know, it's it's going to be very interesting. I think Josh Allen has uh, the best chance to have the best season out of um, most of them. But as far as pure potential, for me, it's Josh Rosen. Uh, you know, Arizona got a, I think, got the steal of the draft by getting the best quarterback with the tenth pick where multiple quarterbacks go before him, and then they get the best quarterback. And he's in the perfect fit, because you're mixed with now David Johnson, who's a great running back, one of the best in the league, and an excellent receiving running back. You have an incredible wide receiver in Larry Fitzgerald, who really has found like the fountain of youth at times in his career. Arizona is you know, in a tough division, but it's on. It's it's a division that certainly Josh Rosen I think can play extremely well, uh, and I mean, you want to talk about confidence, and I know like we say like you know does uh, 
Baker Mayfield has all the confidence in the world, or Baker Mayfield is more of a confident player than a Sam Darnold. You want to talk about confidence? You get drafted, and you say nine other teams made the biggest mistake. That's confidence right then and there. Multiple teams took a quarterback. Multiple teams needed a quarterback or didn't need a quarterback. And he goes flat out and just calls out every team that didn't draft him by saying that. That's pure confidence to me. And I think he's going to be he's in the perfect fit. And I think out of all the teams, he's the one that can surpass the quarterback battle a lot quicker than others. Maybe Sam Darnold is the one exception because of uh, McCown's age more than anything. But Tyrod Taylor's a very good quarterback, and he's going to have a very good team around him and actual offensive weapons. And I think that's more of a challenge for Baker Mayfield, and I already view Baker as a bust. Allen has nothing in Buffalo except cold weather and McCoy, and that's it. And and more cold weather at times. Uh, so I think he's just more of a handoff quarterback right now because he has no one to throw to. Uh, Darnold has a lot more questions of um, talent around him as well. I think he can at least avoid those issues uh, being a more talented passer. But And Lamar Jackson, I think, is the best one of them all. But, I, again, it, there's going to be questions on whether he can escape uh, and beat out Joe Flacco. There's not much talent around him other than Alex Collins, who is one of my favorite running backs in the lead right now. And there's a lot of more issues with like general manager possibly leaving, coach possibly leaving, and then you draft a quarterback. So there's uh, there's a lot more questions I think with that one when it comes long term. But I think for uh, Rosen to me is the pure standout, and I think he's going to have an incredible career in the NFL. We both like the Giants. Uh, I think you're more of a Giant fan than me though. Uh, But the Giants drafted Saquon Barkley. Overpicking a quarterback and overpicking a guy like Rosen or Darnold, having all the options after Baker Mayfield went first. Giants believing that they can still win and compete right now uh, in a, really what seems like a win now mode with Eli and company as Eli's getting older in age and then they'll eventually have to move on from Eli. But, Jose, did you like the move of going with Barkley or would you have rather have seen them draft a quarterback? You know, I'm perfectly fine with them drafting Barkley. Um, I would have preferred a quarterback, uh, but really the Giants were in a spot where they could do no wrong. And I know you're going to disagree with this, but um, <laughs> you already know. I, I already feel it over over the headset. Um, but if you look at the Giants, let's say they draft a quarterback. Great. You get a young QB, an easy replacement for Eli when he retires in a year or two. He'll be there on the team. He'll be able to mesh well with guys like Beckham, Shepard, you know, Ingram, guys who are going to be there for a while. The QB will develop a relationship with them. And he'll eventually take over. And since Barkley's young, it'll, I mean, not Barkley, I'm sorry, they won't have Barkley. But it'll be a seamless transition probably for the quarterback. You'll still have a good young defense. A lot of those guys are still pretty young there. Um, and, you know, and all will be well, right? You get your QB of the future. But if you also go on the flip side, and for the Giants, if you draft Barkley now, the Giants can still win. And I know you say that they still started 0-3 last year, even when the team was healthy. But let's be honest, though. They had an incredibly tough schedule to start the year. And the team was incredibly unhealthy towards the second half of the season. When you lose four out of your five receivers, who are you honestly throwing to? I'm pretty sure they picked up one of my high school classmates 
for Eli Manning to throw to halfway through the season. I wasn't even recognizing the receivers after a while. But you get a guy like Barkley, who truly is a talented running back, is a game-changing quarterback. He's on that level of Ezekiel Elliott. I truly believe that. You're, is, you're still in win-now mode. And not to mention, but the Giants also had an incredible draft in overall, too, in my opinion. You drafted Will Hernandez for the offensive line, who's definitely an upgrade over Eric Flowers. They drafted a lot of good defensive, young defensive pieces. So if you're the Giants, you know, it was you could have gone either way. You can go win now and get Barkley, or you can get a QB to stash for now. But you know what? Maybe the Giants just have total confidence in Davis Webb. And I think that says something that the Giants were willing to hang on to Davis Webb. And maybe they know something that we don't. Um, I do know that Webb does room with a lot of the wide receivers, so he is building that relationship. And on top of that, the Giants did draft a QB in the fourth round. You never know what that could bring as well, too. The more competition, the better. So is it disappointing that the Giants didn't get one of these top-tier QBs? Sure, but I'm also not going to sit here, sit here and complain because they did get a dynamic running back, which they needed, in Saquon Barkley. They needed a running back. There's no doubt about that. And I think they signed Jonathan Stewart in free agency uh, before the draft. And that's not going to get you much. I mean, that basically means that if he he's just, a good backup, backup running back, if he gets handed the ball and falls down and gets a yard, we'll consider that a win. Uh, but here's my point: you went with the second worst record in the NFL last season. The only team worse than you last year was the 0-16 Cleveland Browns. You don't have a quarterback of the future like the San Francisco 49ers do. Like when they played each other and what one team had one win and the other team had two wins and we all thought, oh, they're playing for second worst record in the NFL. Assuming Cleveland doesn't win a game. Well, it turns out that's not true at all because the 49ers had Jimmy Garoppolo and we saw how good he's going to be and they have a franchise quarterback now. And we see the same with the Jets, who traded up for the third pick. And we saw the same with the uh, Colts, who had the third pick in the draft and traded down a little bit. The Tetsons, Deshaun Watson. Where am I going with this? You're coming off a season where you were the second worst team in the NFL. You're sticking with, you know, Eli Manning still, who's not that great of a quarterback in my mind. You added some offensive line pieces. You added some running back pieces. Your defense basically wasn't that good last season. And if you're going to hope that it was what it was two years ago, that's a mistake to try and hope for. The offense is going to try and be good, but overall it's been really crappy. Oh, and the Giants have only had one season in the last six where they had more than seven wins. And on top of all that, I know you're not in control of the schedule before the draft comes out, but now that it's out, week one, Jadwars. Oh, they just went to the AFC conference, uh, championship game last season, and they got Blake Bortles. And no, I'm dead serious when <laughs> I say on. Blake Bortles. Come on. I don't mean that joking. <laughs> and they got Blake Bortles. The Dallas Cowboys, who I think are going to win the division this year. The Houston Texans. Now, if Deshaun Watson is playing in that game, one of the most dangerous quarterbacks we saw when he first came in for the Texans. The New Orleans Saints. The Carolina Panthers. Oh, they made the playoffs last year. Both of them. The Eagles, oh, they just won a Super Bowl. Then, you get to play the Falcons, also made the playoffs. Finally a break, you'll play Washington, a division rival. 
Then you play the 49ers, Jimmy Garoppolo, who still hasn't lost a game as a quarterback. I'm sure by then he will. But that's still the point of you're still playing a great quarterback. The Eagles again. This doesn't get easier for you. But does a quarterback help you win those games? Yes, if you have one. And that's not Eli Manning. But if they draft a QB, he's not starting. We all know that. But does Eli Manning let you win those games? Or does another You have a chance with Eli Manning, but even if you draft a QB, he's not playing for like another two years. We we know that, right? (laughs) Even... There's a possibility he was going to start. I mean, we no, were there's no at way. Gino no started. Geno Smith started yeah, last season. Now ben you McAdoo can say that that's because <laughs> the Giants were injured and the head coach was a moron. But Geno Smith started a game that's, and ended Eli Manning's streak. By that, anybody can start in front of Eli Manning. No, so, I don't think. So. I think if you draft a QB, he's sitting with the clipboard until until Eli retires. Honestly, I, uh, that's not long. And judging by this uh, this schedule that the Giants are going to have to face, in the first seven games, it's five former playoff teams. And the only two that aren't are the Dallas Cowboys, who really are a playoff team, and the Houston Texans, who would have been a playoff team if Deshaun Watson didn't get hurt. You still have to play Andrew Luck later on in the season, assuming he plays in the second to last week of this season. There's so many challenging games. The easiest one that stands out to me are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Chicago Bears. That's the only two games that you can tell me that, okay, the Giants are 100% winning because they'll probably split one with the Redskins. So that... There's not much to look at this and say, you know, the Giants are going into the season in a win-now mode in an extremely tough year. And I don't think it's going to get easier. So this is a tough move for me to say. And now when you look at the schedule, it looks even more of a worse move. Again, Barkley could be great. And the Giants could have a phenomenal running back for the next five or ten years. But do they have a quarterback? When... There's Carson Wentz when there's Dak Prescott already in that division, when the Eagles have looked like they're going to be a dominant team for the next 10 years, when the Cowboys look like they're going to be a dominant team for the next 10 years, when Washington seems hopeless at times but still is around. Uh, There's just a lot of more um, challenging questions, and you're left with an aging Eli Manning as your best hope. It doesn't really add up for me. Uh, The NFL also was in stories these past couple days uh, for a reason they shouldn't even be in stories for. 31 owners decide to make a vote that could either fine or uh, players for kneeling, or it could result in flags before the game for kneeling during the national anthem. And obviously it's a huge political part at times for this, but I want to avoid the politics. We both agreed on that. We're not going to get into the politics part of it, but 31 owners vote. Woody Johnson of the Jets then says he'll cover the fines if any of his players kneel anyway. That raises the question of why vote to begin with. But my question to you is like, was this necessary to make a vote about where the owners get together and 31 of them vote? The 49ers decide to abstain from voting. We haven't spoken about the kneeling in a while. The NFL season is like five months removed and still at least three more months away before playing. D- 
did it seem like this was appropriate to just come out of nowhere for? No, I mean, no, it didn't. I, I don't think it was necessary to vote on. Um, again, you know, freedom of speech is, is the number one thing there. Um, I think it's extremely weird. And the thing that I'm upset about is that if you're the NFL, why lie to your players? Like you basically told your players, we support you, you know, all this other stuff, right? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to create unity, right? When everybody was linking arms that one weekend, um, you know, it was all about unity and Roger Goodell was on their side, but to turn around and do this vote, it's almost like a slap in the face to players, in my opinion, because it's like you, you basically saying that, yeah, we support you. We want you to feel comfortable in expressing your voice. Oh, but now you can't express your voice and we're done. That's it. It's over. Like, to me, that's just a giant slap in the face of the players and saying, hey, we got your back. We're going to support you, but you really don't. And what you did was you started listening to the money because who dropped out of the, who dropped out of the NFL commercials? Papa John's did. You know, who else threatened to take money out from the NFL? Probably several other companies did. Ratings went down. You know, fans started to boycott. So what the NFL did at the end of the day was said, oh, no, we're losing money. Oh, sorry, guys, we're not backing your rights anymore because money is more important and to me that's the sad part of it so not only was it unnecessary but when money starts to matter more and we know it does money makes the world go around you know sports at the end of the day is a business but when money starts to matter more than your players rights that's a sad sad story uh you know one other thought that came into my mind was the idea of shut up and play or or shut up and dribble or shut up and just play uh you know, a lot of times when it comes to certain things like this, a lot of fans will just say, you know, they should be happy with the money they have, not look to make anything other than that, and just shut up and play. The owners of these teams and the people that pay these contracts to the players basically just said that too. And I think that's the worst way to put it because you're in an organization that just won't care. And and I think that's unfortunate for the players. It certainly feels like, you know, a a lot of different rights are taken away on that point, especially like the freedom of speech part. And it became like 31 owners decided to say the words, shut up and play. And to me, that's just not right. Well, let's jump into baseball for a bit on a happier point. Uh, you know, my favorite sport, Jose, I believe it's your favorite sport as well. We're just a third under the season, about 50 games in. Uh, so with that in mind, 50 games in, there's still over 100 left. Obviously, a lot can change. And... Before going into a couple of the teams that I want to talk about and see whether you view them as teams that are for real, teams that are falling out of the race early, or is this going to be a long season possibly, I want to cover this one because I think there's a real difference between the American League and the National League, and I'm not just talking about the designated hitter. When you look at the power rankings every single week, it seems like there's always three teams that are in there. Houston Astros, the New York Yankees, and the Boston Red Sox. And be that as may, they have three of the three best records in the MLB. But I want to take a look at the National League for a moment. 
in the National League, 10 of the 15 teams are over 500. Only six American League teams are over 500. There's an entire division where the Indians are 500, everybody is under, and in the West, there are four teams over 500, and in the East, it's the Boston uh, Red Sox and the New York Yankees, just a game apart between each other, and the other three teams are now 10 games out of that division already. In the National League, the top four teams in each division three or three and a half games out of the division lead. Just the series separates them from being in fourth or first. And if you look at the Padres, fifth in that division in the West, they're just five and a half games out. So they're not really that far out either. It's just really the Marlins, who we all knew were dead, and the Reds, who are having one of the worst seasons uh, to open up the year. So here's my question. Obviously, we have the three American League teams that are dominating with the best records, but looking at the National League, are we not giving the National League enough credit right now, or that there's just so many great teams in the National League, or there's just no real great team and everyone's just, you know, beating up on each other pretty well? Well, first things first, I hope Matt Harvey's enjoying the nightlife in Cincinnati, my friend. Uh, <laughs> second of all, you know, it really is a flip of the coin. It, it really is a question that I don't know the answer to, because like you said, the gap between the first place teams in the American League and some of these other teams are so huge that teams are already out of it, right? We already hear the Kansas City Royals saying, hey, we're going to have a for sale sign. Like, that's where we're at. By the way, Nick, it's May 25th. We're in May, and teams are already prepping for a fire sale. So when you look at the National League side, you see things so close together. And it's like you said, is it a question of, man, this league is so competitive, or is no one just not good enough to run away with a division? And the answer is, you know, I, I really don't know. I always lean to the side of it being more competitive because teams are more evenly matched. Um, I think the American League is always going to get more hype because they have the DH, um, because they have more power teams. I think, you know, TV stations like ESPN, Fox, when they come out with these power rankings, they always, you know, they tend to lean towards those teams because they get more attention. They're more entertaining to watch, so to speak. Um, so you're going to see that all the time. But it's like you said, I really don't know if it's because teams in the National League are more competitive or it's because nobody's good enough to run away with a division. I think it's because they're more competitive. But at the end of the day, I think they're so evenly matched. Um, you know, And you could tell, too, a lot of National League teams, they emphasize on the same thing. It's either pitching or defense and stuff like that. Um, so I really think it is because it's more competitive than the American League. But it could also be because these teams are just not good enough against the American League teams, too. Uh, the American League, I think, gave up and waved the white flag to start this season. It's basically the Eastern Conference. It, 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 it kind of is. It, it, we, we knew there were five teams or four teams to really look at in the American League. And the only question I think everybody had was, who's going to get that second wild card spot? Is it going to be the Angels? Is it going to be the Twins? The Mariners. Maybe the Mariners. That was it. I, I mean, probably the biggest surprise in the, the the American League right now is Oakland is over 500. But the American League, what was their bid signings? Lance Lynn to the Minnesota Twins? Uh, Alex Cobb to the Baltimore Orioles when we already knew come opening day Manny Machado is getting traded? 
J.D. Martinez. That's probably the biggest one. J.D. Martinez is a great example. The Boston Red Sox won over 90 games last season. They're going to make a splash. The New York Yankees won over, what, uh, got to the playoffs last season. They're going to add Stanton. Uh, The Houston Astros, they won the World Series. They're going to add Garrett Cole. What did the rest of the American League do? They just had their hands in their pockets and watched. So I I really don't agree with the power rankings. And I'm not going to try and say the Yankees aren't the best team or the Red Sox aren't the best team or or the Astros aren't the best team. I'm just going to say it's irrelevant. And not because we're just 50 games into the season, but who are these teams playing on a consistent basis? Not much. The Yankees did play very well in some big games against top teams in the American League. And they did very well in that series. But overall, I mean, I give a lot more credit. I'm a lot more interested in the National League right now, with especially teams like Atlanta, the Phillies, the Marlins in a couple of years. But we're seeing a lot of young talent come into the MLB and the National League a lot more than the American League. Does anybody think Vlad Guerrero Jr. is coming up right now? No. Why come up if you're 10-plus games out of the division right now and nowhere to be found? You can dominate double-A, but why waste an arbitration year on a year that's already off? I was going to say also, the Super 2, it's more likely you see him after the Super 2 deadline. Yeah, when the 40-man roster increases, uh, when you go from 25 to 40, you got a great chance of seeing him coming up. He'll probably come up because he's just running through everything he plays. But there's not a need to bring him up right now. Like Okuna, there, there's a need to bring him up if you were the Braves because you're playing too good right now and you've got to bring him up right now. Even though he was struggling a little in minors, now he's killing it again in the majors. Uh, Lu- Luis Gohar in, in the minor leagues. Now he's in the major leagues. Mike Soroka, uh, minor leagues right now on the DL in the major leagues. But that's what we're seeing in National League. The, the Dodgers already called up uh, Bueller. They had to. If Pirates called up Austin Meadows, partly because Stalin Marte is on the DL and partly because the Pirates are still fighting for the division. I didn't expect them to be anywhere near it. You called that one, Jose. But So I, I really don't agree with looking at and say, I, don't, I agree with you. I don't really know if there's any true great team in the National League yet, but by far, damn sure, I'm more interested in the National League when you tell me that 10 teams are over 500 and all of them are just separated by three and a half games in divisions for the first four. You can't get more exciting than that right now. And we're, we're close to June. And, and two months from now, we'll be at the trade deadline. And can you imagine if we got 10 National League teams doing what they're doing still come June? That that to me uh, still coming towards the, at the end of July. I think that will be the incredible point. And I think that will be something to look at. But want to look at a couple teams and get your opinions on where they're at, and do you think that we'll see a change in pace? And for starters, we have to go with the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're 22 and 27, currently fourth in the division. Kershaw's still on the disabled list. Justin Turner's currently back. Kershaw's going to be out till about early June, mid June. But for the Dodgers, this is this is a team that was what had the best record in baseball last year, and currently five games under 500. So, Jose, what are we looking at when it comes to the Dodgers? Do you see this as a longer season, under 500, or out of the division, or 
give it another couple of weeks and they'll be right back in it. Now, give, give it another couple of weeks. I don't know where they'll be in a couple of weeks, but I know they're not going to finish under 500. Um, once they get Kershaw back, their division, their division, their rotation should be a little bit more stable. You know what happens when Kershaw comes back for the Dodgers. Um, obviously, they're struggling right now. Turner, you know, give him a couple of weeks to get his feet back into routine. He did get hurt very early on in the season. And when you get like sort of a delayed start like that, you know, you're not right in the beginning of the year. Um, you know, Bellinger has to get it going. Puig has to get it going. These guys are just slumping right now. Um, I think the Dodgers are too good. And, and really, who's going to jump them? The Padres? You know, I, I don't think the Giants are better than them yet. Um, so, at the Dodgers, you know, them getting off to their slow start is going to hurt them when it comes to the end of the year because they're not going to be able to run away with division. But I still think the Dodgers are going to bounce back and at least fight for the division. Um, it sucks that Corey Seager is out for the entire year probably. Um but I do expect the Dodgers to bounce back and at least put up a fight. Um, I can't say with confidence that they'll win the division, uh, maybe a wild card. But I, I don't think the Dodgers are just going to lay down and die either. They're only three and a half. They're five games under five hundred, three and a half games behind the Rockies. The Rockies are only two games over five hundred. Then there's, you know, let's put it this way: as far as stats go, plus sixteen and run differential. The only other team positive, Arizona plus two in that division. Uh, the Dodgers, I think, are fine. Even without Corey Seager, they're right in this. I don't think there's much of a concern when it comes to this. I think the Dodgers, like you said, without Corey Seager, without Justin Turner for a while, uh, Cody Bellinger struggled a little bit to kick off the year. Uh, it, it certainly slows them down a bit, but this is still one of the best teams in baseball. And having a guy like Chris Taylor, I think, is so underrated. Because he's looking like a Ben Zobers, but a much better version. Because we're seeing him play in the outfield, we're seeing him play second base at times, we're seeing him play shortstop. And he is a very good hitter, not just a defensive player. Ben Zobers much more of a defensive player now in his career than as a hitter. But Chris Taylor is both, and... He's not Corey Seager, but he can be an excellent replacement at shortstop long-term. And we still know the Dodgers are a team that's willing to spend money and trade for players and really up their ante. So there's always that question of whether they want to trade for a guy like Manny Machado. And they certainly could. Uh, So I'm not going to say the Dodgers are out of it. Uh, You're currently writing for the Rising Apple, a a Mets blog website. Uh, You've seen a couple of the articles. Uh, The New York Mets. 25-21 25-21 right now. Four games over 500. That gets you for fourth in the division. Way to go, Mets. Um, you know, looking at the schedule, though, it's pretty damn challenging. Till the end of June, only two teams they play under 500. Baltimore Orioles for two games. And the Los Angeles Dodgers. But who knows by the time we get to that, Kershaw will probably be back. And that team will be over 500. Um, this is going to be a real challenging part for the Mets. What are you looking at when it comes to them? Yeah, with the Mets, you know, give them credit. They had a phenomenal start to the year. They came back down to earth a little bit. But right now, they kind of hit that plateau where we expect them to be hovering over 500, trying to, you know, figure out what kind of team they are right now. The schedule, as you said, the schedule does get really tough. And it's actually at a bad timing, too, because the Mets still are not at full health, right? Suspidus is still hurt. You know, you still have other guys on the shelf, too. Frazier's not playing right now. Um, Cabrera, you never thought you'd say he's carrying the load, right? As Drupal Cabrera has been playing phenomenal. They just signed Jose Bautista in what honestly is a confusing signing for me. 
Um, it's just not good timing right now for the Mets. And I think this, you know, this upcoming stretch of games is actually going to hurt them. Um, you're facing a lot of challenging teams, and the Mets are a team that really they're successful the most when they're at full health. They're not they're not at full health right now. So for the Mets, um, I do expect them to be a 500 team, you know, going forward and really fighting for that wild card spot. But it's going to be a very hard, hard, hard stretch of games coming up soon, as you said, especially when they're not healthy. Yeah, this is uh, this is still going to be a rough year. There are four teams over 500. I don't even think the team is playing that good to be that way. Uh, and you could say in our idea that they could have won two days ago if Familia doesn't blow the save. Uh, there's a lot more questions when it comes to this team. And when you're making moves and adding guys like Jose Batista, I don't think it's going to be promising long-term for you. It, it's, I think it's going to be a tough year. And when you're fourth in your division, four games over 500, that certainly means that the Phillies, Braves, and the Nationals are all playing well. I'm, I'm, if I'm the Mets, I'm worried right about now, and I'm not sitting pretty, even though I'm only three, three and a half games out of the division. There's a lot to look at this. To it could be a long season. Now Arizona, Diamondbacks, they're a little bit different. They. They kicked off the year like the Mets red hot, one of the best records in baseball, looking like a great World Series favorite. Started the season winning their first nine series. Now they're just one game over 500. AJ Pollock hurt, Steven Sozer Jr. hurt, Robbie Ray hurt, Paul Goldsmith struggling. You know, could this get away from the dying bats pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean, this is a team that's really at the rely on being fully healthy to be a complete um, team. This year, when they had JD Martinez, you saw what they did earlier this year when they ran off that incredible stretch of how many series in a row did they win? Um, so, honestly, the Diamondbacks are a lot like the Mets. They just got done facing each other. If this team is not healthy, it's hard for them to continue to go. Um, I do expect the Diamondbacks to be back at a high level once everybody gets healthy. I kind of put them in the same boat as the LA Dodgers. Uh, yeah, I, I put them in the opposite one. So, I, I think the Dodgers have a better chance of going long-term in a, in a uh, positive and a progressive way of getting back into the division. Obviously, they're not that far out. None of these teams are really that far out. But the Diamondbacks, I mean, this could be a lot of trouble. Robbie Ray was their ace of last season, yeah, much better than Zach Drenke, and Zach Drenke still pitched phenomenal. Uh Zach Goodley has struggled in his last start. He was a guy that pitched uh, very one of those guys they relied on a lot. I expected him to have a real big breakout season this year. We really haven't seen that. Patrick Corbin was pitching like a Cy Young to begin the year. Possibly a good part of the reason why the Diamondbacks kicked off to such an early start. You would expect him to fall a little bit from there. And and Goldsmith just can't seem to hit the fastball when he's being thrown a fastball over 95 miles an hour. That's a scary stat when you're talking about one of the best first basemen in the league and what I think is the best first baseman in the league, and he is struggling as mightily as he's doing. A.J. Pollock, when he got injured, he was leading the National League or all of the MLB and RBIs. Not the guy you'd pick to be leading that category, but... They're losing a lot of guys right now. It could be trouble for Arizona. And if I'm looking at them, 
I'm at a red alert moment because this could get out of hand for them. And the last thing you want to see if you're Arizona is fall behind in this division, put yourself out of it, and feel that worry of, do we have to start trading some people? All right, National League East. Obviously, we would talk about the Washington Nationals, but there's two other teams that are really standing out right now, and that's the Phillies and the Braves. The Braves 29 and 19, the Phillies 28 and 19, the second and third best records in the National League. Pretty much those two teams nobody would expect to be that best in the record wise. Are they for real? No, I mean, the answer to that is, is definitely, um, it's hard because I don't want to say they're not for real because, you know, this, these are two teams that are definitely on the rise. They definitely have a lot of prospects that still haven't hit the, the top of the MLB yet. Um, and this is a team that's pretty rich in young talent, too. So are they for real? Yes. Is the timing right is the question. And that's a no. I don't think the Braves and the Phillies are going to be here at year's end. I do think the Phillies are going to be the most improved team. I did say that when I was making predictions and stuff. Um, so I could see the Phillies and Braves competing to the very end, fighting for a wild card spot. But the Phillies and Braves will not make the playoffs. I think they're peaking too soon. I think you're looking at next year to definitely a year when the Phillies and Braves can really challenge the Nationals for the top spot. Uh, I'm going to say the Braves remind me a lot of the Yankees. And I'm not saying the home run Yankees last season, but I'm saying that young Yankee team. In terms of being ahead of schedule. Yes, and that's what the Braves really look like right now. You're talking about Acuna coming up, and he looks like the Nets might trout at times. Ozzy uh, is playing. Uh, Jose Altuve said you can't, it. You can't say his last name, man. Alves? Yeah, you, that's it. You got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's not that challenging. <laughs> it's not Giannis. <laughs> um, no, but Jose Altuve is like he's playing better at 21 than I am at 28. They're, Freddie Freeman is hitting like the best first baseman in the league. Ozzy's hitting like the best second baseman in the league. Nick Marcakis. I mean, and where on top the of hell that, did how many he come times, from? And on top of that, we're not even talking about Freddie Freeman, which how many times was he the only person that we were talking about in Atlanta? He, he was the only person in Atlanta for a while. But the pitching staff, I mean, my, like Julio Tehran, you expect him to be that guy for you, and he is not. Not nearly as what every other pitcher on this team has been. Sean Newcomb has been in very impressive this season. He's looking like he's up for a Cy Young at the rate he's going. The uh, the back of the bullpen in A.J. Minter, and then you add into the fat Danny Winter. They have that type of core that could go 7th, 8th, 9th inning against you. They have young players coming in. Ender and Tarse leads the lead in stolen bases. I, I am sold on the Braves, maybe not to win the division, but they're a playoff team. And they're certainly going to the playoffs this year. I don't know if they can beat the Nationals the long term for the division, but this team is definitely playoff bound because there's just so much young talent and not just young talent, really, really great young future talent that this could be the Braves like we saw when Chipper Jones first came in. And you have guys like him, John Maddox, Tom Dwyer, great uh so it's just, it's going to be possibly for, I know I'm saying this to a, another Mets fan, and it's, it's a worrying moment, but the Braves could be one of the best teams for a decade long, the way they're looking this year. 
And if these young guys are able to do what they're doing consistently, it'd be a scary moment. The Phillies, I'm not necessarily sold on. They're just not doing in batting average. Uh, Aaron O'Thur, Carlos Santana, they're, they're just not hitting for average at all. Uh, so it's one of you a batting average guy. I, I'm a little bit of a batting average guy. On base percentage matters too. Uh, it just asked is Drupal Herrera, who had like 45 straight games of getting on base. Could have been 46, but depending on whose rule book you follow. Um, but I think there's still a couple pieces still missing for the Phillies. And I think starting pitching can be one of them as a big factor. But, I mean, we went from making fun of, uh, what, Gabe Kapler to now looking at him as, you know, he's he's coaching his team pretty good. So it is interesting. Um, for the American League, though, you know, as far as the teams go, it's really tough to pick anybody. I could pick the Oakland A's as that surprise team right now, but we're not going to do that. Uh, how about Shohei Otani? 40 innings, 4 wins, 52 strikeouts, and a 3.35 ERA as a starter. As a hitter, oh, he's batting 319. He's 30 for 94 with 6 home runs, 19 RBIs, and an on-base plus slugging of 991. Are you sold for Otani as one of the game's best players? I'm not sold on him being one of the best players yet. Um, I still want to see him go through a full season before I can call him one of the best players. He has been super impressive, though, and has exceeded expectations for me, honestly. Um, you know, he was a two-way star in Japan, and even though he did it over there, you, you, you know, you, you question if you can do it over here. You know, can something really be done like that, where he can play some games and pitch in another? Um, and so far, he's done that, and that's been very, a lot of fun to watch, too. Um, you know, you hear him say that he wants more at-bats, he wants more of this— uh, which is also fun to hear because you can see he's really getting, you know, enjoying his time and he's really changing the game in a way where, who knows, maybe this opens the door for more Japanese players who have that style to come over and do this as well, too, where not just be a pitcher, but be a hitter as well, too. And he's succeeding as a he's not one of those guys that's just swinging his bat, you know, and swinging for a home run every single time. He's actually doing it. He's putting up good numbers. You know, he's driving in runs and it's creating a good combo in the lineup. Um, again, I just wonder, you know, let's say if they get in a wild card game, what happens? Does he pitch and does he hit? Um, that'll be a pretty interesting factor in a way. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's been the most dominant at either one because he's not having, you know, a full season at either one. I think if you look at it and say, oh, if he was playing as a hitter, probably that average would be a little bit lower or maybe he, his numbers would be even a little bit better. Uh, but He's putting up very good numbers in all of his categories. And I'm not going to say he's the best player in MLB, but he's easily one of the best. You're looking at him and you're saying, probably at the end of the year, there's not going to be 40 guys that I can name better than Shohei Otani on pitchers, relievers, and hitters because of what he does, and he's the only player that does it putting up strong numbers in every category for both sides. So I, I think that's a very, again, we've never seen a player like him since Babe Ruth. And even when it came to Babe Ruth, he was mainly a pitcher and then he became a hitter and he dominated both, but he played only one of them. So it, it's just so much of a rarity to see a player like him before. Uh, you know, it's, 
when it comes to baseball, we can always talk about baseball, and it always leads to some kind of steroid topic. And nevertheless, Robinson Cano and Wellington Castillo uh, both suspended 80 games. Obviously, Castillo catcher for the White Sox, not nearly as big of a name as Robinson Cano. Uh, but here's the interesting part of Cano. Cano is putting up numbers that could have led him towards the Hall of Fame. I think we both can agree on that one. Do you view him as a Hall of Famer type player now that he's been suspended? Well, honestly, no doubt that he's been a Hall of Famer. If I had a vote, the answer is no. Because, again, I, I don't tolerate that. I don't like voting for cheaters. I wouldn't vote for a steroid user. I can't say with 100% confidence that this hurts his chances because times have changed. Um, you see guys like Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds getting a, uh, you know, a massive incremental you know, increase in votes. I don't think they'll get in because I don't think they're going to have enough time. Um, but as more steroid users hit the ballots, I think you're going to see um, people look the other way, especially if it's only like a one-time offense, right? Um, I think the true true test will be Alex Rodriguez when it's his time to enter the hall what's going to happen and until we see that until we see guys like Alex Rodriguez or even a David Ortiz even though he was never tested positive until we see those guys retire and what happens with them we won't truly know the fate of future steroid users yeah um I I think if Cano doesn't get suspended and he just continues to play out his career he, he's going to wind up in. He's winding up in the Hall of Fame. He may not be first ballot, but this has been one of the most, one of the best players, for at least the last decade. And unless you need him to run out of ground ball, but that's different. <laughs> it, true, but he's still one of the better defensive players. He's not an all-time like you know hustler in that sense, but still one of the strongest arms for a second baseman, one of the best hitters for a second baseman, and. and Again, a, a position that's not known for a dominant spot. Um, but w- w- when we talk about Hall of Fame percentage, I mean, Roger Clemens, 57. Barry Bonds, 56% last season. And Manny Ramirez, 22%. I mean, if, you, if there's one thing to consider Bonds and Clemens because their numbers are just too good even with steroids that there's a point where you can't ignore it. Or there's a point where it's like, well, they never got suspended, and they never truly failed a test. Manny Ramirez failed, too. Manny Ramirez was suspended. Twice. And he still took home 22% of the vote last year. So there's always the possibility of it. So let me present this question to you. The MLB made rule changes where if you make the playoffs and you get suspended for steroids, you can't play in the playoffs this year. So if Seattle does make it to the playoffs, Robinson Cano will be watching it like everybody else at home, or in the dugout, or in the stands. But he won't be on the field. Should the MLB be considering the idea of changing a rule and not allowing PD steroid-suspended players to getting into the Hall of Fame? Um, you, you know, I don't think they should implement a rule uh, for that. I think that has to be a person's judgment. I think it has to be in the, in, the, in the hands of the people that are voting, right? Because sometimes you hear excuses like, oh, well, 
I, I was taking something for this and you know, I didn't know it was like Cano was spinning the excuse that he was taking it for medical reasons or, you know, the kid from Kansas City who got suspended because he was taking, you know, what was it like cough medicine that ended up being that ended up being on the banned substance list. Um, so sometimes mistakes do happen. And I don't think you can break out your pitchforks and and execute a guy the minute he gets suspended. I will say that, you know, you know how MLB has that three strike rule where it's 80 games, a full season and then you're banned. I will say maybe after the second time, you deserve that, hey, you're probably not going to get into the Hall of Fame because at this point, you know you're cheating twice. Um, so I would prefer maybe a stricter rule maybe after your first offense. But if it's one offense, um, I think people will still want to look the other way. Even though I personally wouldn't vote for him, there are people who would. I think they deserve that chance at least to be forgiven the first time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say maybe after the second offense. I, I think if... The MLB was going to take it to that point. It's the players' union that has to push for that. So I, I don't think the MLB can go, you know, you, the player, can't be eligible. But I think the players can go, you have to make this stricter. Or we care about the legacy of the league. And that's not really, I think, what they care about. I think they care about more of, you know, player money and playoffs and a little bit more integrity on that part um we've seen different issues of like steroids being a reason why one person got a job and the other person didn't and was stuck in the minor leads but you know there there are certainly a lot of different standpoints that can be taken on this one um and eventually i think it will get stricter and i think that it will lead to suspended full season at, at any point so if you get torn in April, you get torn in July, you're just suspended for the full year and not just 80 games. Or I think that's going to be what the MLB decides from their next point because I think there's going to come a time where I, I, players are going to want more than just the 80 games suspensions done for this, and I think they're going to look for it to be you're, you're done for the full season until next year or it's going to be just a straight 162-game suspension. Because I think there, there's just going to be a, there's a lower tolerance policy that players are having for it. We're seeing that with Twitter. Justin Verlander made an interesting post about it, and others have definitely posted about it. So you know people's opinions on it. Jose Batista was always extremely strong against it. Uh, so th- there's going to come a point. But it's certainly still an issue in baseball with steroids. All right, with every show we do, and it's been a while again, but with every show... There's always our dude and dunce of the week, and there is always beard back. And we have a couple of them for this segment for today. So we're going back in the past couple times, and we'll start with 1922 Babe Ruth. And I thought this was too funny that I could not not include it. Uh, Babe Ruth was suspended for one day and fined $200 for throwing dirt on an umpire. And that was back in... May 25th of 1922 and that to me is just the greatest like cartoon moment of like just the the manager coming out or kicking dirt onto the umpire's shoes and we never really take that as a serious one but they certainly did in a $200 fine and nowadays what is it usually like over a thousand or ten thousand dollar fines depending on different things in sports now instead of just 200 bucks uh but Babe Ruth also makes this list again 
1935, 13 years later, Babe Ruth hit his final home run. His 714th set a record for 39 years until Hank Aaron broke it, but he hit three home runs in that game for his final three in his career. In 1941, Ted Williams raised his batting average over 400 for the first time, though it would not be his last time. He finished over a season with an over 400 batting average. 1951, Willie Mays makes his major league debut. There was 0 for 5 in the debut. Now it always seems like a debut features a home run. It didn't always feature that back then. Juan Soto, 19 years old for the Nationals, hit a home run on the first pitch he saw earlier What uh, in the week against... Uh, I don't even remember who the Nationals were playing, but I do know he hit the home run. <laughs> uh, 1963, Earl Wynn won his 300th baseball game, which is pretty much an automatic sentence to the Hall of Fame. And Ferdy Jenkins became the seventh pitcher ever to strike out 3,000 batters. A lot occurred on May 5th, uh, May 25th in uh, sports history, and there's even a bunch more as well, like Cowboy Flames winning their first championship, the Golden State Warriors winning their first championship. A lot occurs on May 25th. And... As always, after Beer Back, we have our Dude and Dunce of the Week. And Dude of the Week for me, Eric Gordon, 24 points off the bench for the Houston Rockets. The Warriors only scored four points total off the bench. And the Rockets able to take a 3-2 to two Western Conference Finals lead in the series, big part because of Eric Gordon scoring 24 and leading the Rockets in scoring in, yes, in the game yesterday. And with that, Jose, who is our Dunce of the Week? Well, our Dunce of the Week, as we mentioned before, is the NFL owners um, for voting on the anthem issue. Again, violates free speech, number one. And two, kind of goes back on their word after they were, quote, supporting their players and their rights to speak their minds. You automatically go and shut them down. I understand sports is a business. You want your money. You're losing money. But when you place money in front of people's rights, that is not the right thing to do. So my Dunce of the Week goes to the NFL owners. Yeah, they... they Certainly something that was just unnecessary to put in. And I completely agree with that one. It's It's been tough because there hasn't been much about LeVar. It usually is an easy one to do. I know. He's he's letting me down as of late. He's actually been on his best behavior, which, um, you know, as my arch nemesis, that's not a cool thing to do. Yeah, his best LeVar behavior in, like, what, three years? Yeah. <laughs> or it certainly has felt like three years already. And before. also, Nick, before we sign off, I do want to mention that there was breaking news while we were recording this podcast, Chris Paul is out for game six of the Rockets Warriors, which is huge in my opinion. I thought you were going to say the other news of Hanley Ramirez. Oh, that too. You want to share that one? So Hanley Ramirez was DFA'd. He's in his final season with the Boston Red Sox because Dustin Pedroia is coming back. And for some reason that they have to make room. Uh, but for Hanley Ramirez, where do you see him winding up? Or what would be a good fit for the now DH role? You know, that is a hard question because I think Hanley Ramirez is, is really restricted now to being a DH. Um, so, you know, I guess a team like the Angels can always need more offense. Maybe a team like the Mariners, especially with Cano now being suspended. Uh, maybe they take a flyer on Hanley um, to use him as a DH, even though I know they have Nelson Cruz primarily as their DH. Um, honestly, this really is a shocking DFA because I wasn't expecting the Red, the Red Sox to do it. He is owed a lot of money. I know he's not playing at his best. Um, but I also don't see a lot of fits for Hanley, so it's going to be very, very interesting going forward. I'm trying to think of a team that he could fit in with. 
There's not many. There's not many because they already have a good DH on most of the teams. Or you're looking at it and like saying, I got to take $15 million on a possible trade or depending on how much I got to sign Hanley Ramirez for. And I'm not even going to compete this year. I, I don't know which team is actually willingly going to consider this one. Uh, but I, I got nobody. Uh, this could be a tough moment for Hanley, and he's going to have to try And I think if he wants a shot into the MLB, I don't think it comes from the American League. I think he's got to show something with his glove and show he can still play maybe third or, or second or some kind of position in the National League where there's just, like we said, so many different teams. Well, who knows? The Mets seem to be taking everybody's rejects, so maybe the Mets will end up signing in to play some first base and further bury Dom Smith into the system. Yeah, th- th- that's a great point. Yeah, we took Adrian Gonzalez, we took Jose Batista. We can take you too. <laughs> <laughs> Welcoming you in with open arms. Anybody over a certain age allowed. That's, that, that, that is the, there, there is an age requirement, and it's not 21, it's like 38 years old. But Again, thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 28. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And enjoy all the finals that are going on right now with the NBA, the NHL. Of course, justify with the horse races as well. I'm, I'm very much interested in the Triple Crown. And, and, Nick, happy Memorial Day to all those who deserve too as well. Yes, of course, with the holiday weekend coming up, enjoy the weekend. I know I certainly will. It's always a fun barbecuing type uh, weekend. And hopefully we have some good weather here in New York because it's just been tons of rain of late. So we'll see what happens in the best of luck for everybody. But enjoy your weekend, and thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard Podcast, Episode 28. That's the sound of a day starting out right. I hear it every time my new Toro Z-Master 4000 Zero Turn starts up. With big-time horsepower, giant voodoo track tires, turbo-force deck, and comforts like MyRide and USB ports, it's fully loaded to mow all day long while delivering that signature Toro cut. From start to finish, this beast means business. Get your Z-Master 4000 today. Toro. Count on it.